Hi, this is Stephen. Before we start this episode, we'd like to pay tribute to one of our listeners who eventually became our friend, who sadly passed away last month. Baz, Uncle Baz, was a really important part of the community that we're so lucky to have surrounding Vase. His mind worked in such a strange and wonderful way, and he was constantly making us all smile with his wit, wisdom, and weird ideas. He was incredibly generous with his knowledge, always eager to help people out and to share his wealth of experience. The support and feedback he gave us for each episode we released was a really big deal to us, and we won't forget it. He loved to share the music he was listening to and photos of his shrine. Once I was having a hard time and he sent me a photo of a flower. It was such a Baz thing to do. We never met in real life, but I could tell that he was a true original, a free thinker with a brilliant mind and a kind and gentle soul. We'll miss you, Uncle Baz, and we won't forget you. Thank you. Welcome to Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Pete C. Hine, and joining me as always is my oldest friend and co-host. He's a work of art that's been under my skin for at least 30 years. He's the needle of inquisition which draws the ink of truth under the fleshy surface of occult discourse. And he has, in bygone times, been the number one permanent or semi-permanent regret of goth girls all over the north of England. It's Mr. (laughs) Stephen James Buckley. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ, I wasn't expecting that last one. Talk about. <laughs> Sorry, I've, I've done myself. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> Christ, that hit home. Do you know? I've worked out now what your intros remind me of. Do you remember? Um, Jumper blind date. And there was yeah. that guy, our Graham, who gave like a little oh, round yeah, up yeah. of all the guests. Yeah. You're, you're the R Graham of face. Oh god, it's early to fall to pieces in a podcast, mate. It's early on. Uh, yeah. So now I want to introduce our guest. Um, tonight, we're, Buckley and I are joined by an artist. Uh, he's an illustrator. He's my tattoo artist of choice, and he's the only man that I've ever paid to permanently alter my body. He's a self-styled synchromistic, a cage fighter, and a connoisseur of all things weird. It's Lauren Fetterman. Hello, Lauren. Happy to be here. Hi there. It's good to have you here. Um, and so uh, just to unpack what I've just said a little bit, you are actually the only tattoo artist I've ever had. Uh, you tattooed me twice, and that's how I know you. Um, you and I were introduced by a mutual friend, um, and um, who, who actually told me, "Oh, uh, yeah, you, you will really, really get on with Lauren." And so I kind of put all my eggs in one basket, and you were the only tattoo artist I considered. And as it turned out, we did talk for the entire. So I think was it six hours the first time, and seven hours the second time that you tattooed me. 
Yeah, I think we do have 13 hours of occult conversation <laughs> yeah. in the in the bucket. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny actually. I tattooed her shortly after tattooing you the last time and she was like, "I don't know what it is about Peter, but he has this amazing ability to get like the most private information out of the other guys at work. They just all confide in him <laughs> the most private things." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, I think I said some pretty private stuff to Peter too." And then he's talked me into doing a podcast with him. And I don't do that for anybody. <laughs> so, I don't know what kind of uh dark magic you're using but uh, well done <laughs> i can't tell you that but um I, i'm really pleased that you agreed to come along because um after the first time we talked i did think like because i was really impressed and this is as, as much for our listeners to know as as telling you how much reading around all this stuff you'd done and i and i we talked i mean for six hours that first time and you know you we were talking about loads and loads of diverse different subjects from the UFO disclosure discourse to magic, um, ritual magic, uh, various types of meditation, um, shadow work, all this stuff. And you were recommending me books and podcasts to listen to. And so even after that first time, I thought, actually, I bet Lauren would be a great guest for Vase. And then after the second time we talked and we did another seven hours on the same subject, but completely different um i was like yeah i think i think we've got to uh, we've got to get you sat down and ask you know, pick some of this stuff out of your brain for our own use awesome thanks peter it's an honor honor to be here so first of all like i'd like to ask a little bit about your background because after all the time that we spent talking i've come to realize that you've got some really unique views on all these weird occult subjects from magic to meditation to psychedelics all this stuff seems to be very unique from all the different people I've spoken to. No one else seems to have the same perspective as you. And I can hear from your accent that you're not from Todmorden, which is where your studio is. So whereabouts are you from? And what was the point at which you realized that there was more to life and reality and consciousness uh, than what is described in consensus reality? Okay. Uh, so I was from a military family. Uh, I was born in Berlin in Germany. I lived there till I was about five. Um, I proudly knocked down the Berlin Wall when I was three with a crowbar. That's a true story. On your Just own? You. <laughs> Just me. <laughs> I can yeah, believe it's uh, singing now. <laughs> I assumed it would be loads of other people as well. Yeah, no, they used to have uh, giant street parties out there, and that was some of my earliest memories was uh, watching my brothers tear it apart with hundreds or thousands of other people. Uh, so I was there until I was five. Um, and then I moved to Virginia. I was there till I was almost 10. And then I moved to the UK. Uh, and then I married a British girl. So it looks like I'm here to stay. Um, so I guess that kind of helps give you a bit of an outsider's perspective on culture pretty early on. That might have helped. Um, and then I guess a lot of it is just the product of an overactive artistic imagination. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I knew I was going to be an artist from about five or six. Right. And so just spending a lot of time in my head creating characters, creating worlds. Um, 
I was really into game design early on too. Like my sort of Bible at the time was this D and D manual that I inherited from my older brothers, and I never played it. But I just spent a lot of hours like creating characters and deciding what spells my wizard was going to learn and that kind of thing. Just flipping through this manual, um, and then I think around fourteen, I got into martial arts and psychedelics at about the same time. Um, it's a potent combination. It sure is. Yeah, it was. Um, I think I just wanted to be like a spell casting ninja. That was sort of my <laughs> guiding archetype. And it was like movies like The Matrix had just come out. That was a big inspiration. Um, the Last Samurai, that kind of like meditating, badass martial arts warrior. That was that was the guided uh, guiding principle or inspiration. Um, and my first psychedelic experiences were. Um, quite profound, I think, for somebody that age compared to like when I try and talk about it with my friends afterwards, I was already kind of having encounters with entities and a lot of Kundalini stuff going on and learning to manipulate that with Qigong and just basically like copying stuff I'd seen Shaolin monks do on TV while tripping. But, you know, enough that... Like, for example, the first time I did that was because my body was vibrating so much. I was like 15, I was on mushrooms, and I was trying to find a way to control this energy. I had this memory of watching these Shaolin monks on TV doing this and, you know, created a chi ball, and it blew my mind. But even more so, when I woke up the next day and discovered, oh, I can still do that. That wasn't just me being on mushrooms. Um so I, I learned early on that I could bring stuff back with me, that I could permanently alter my perception or expand my awareness using them. Wow. And, and for listeners, so when you're talking about a chi ball, you're talking about sort of like body energy condensed into a ball, right? Yeah, it's like a pretty foundational sort of qigong practice you know when you see people stood with their arms out in a circle in horse stance they're building a chi ball or there's different ways of doing it um but that was sort of one of my first encounters with what i considered to be a magical practice um and then yeah i just dabbled in a lot of psychedelics through my teenage years and when i was 17 i think uh somebody gave me a book by judu krishnamurti um, who was, you probably have, uh, come across him, but he was, um, uh, Indian boy, I think was discovered by Leadbeater and the Theosophical Society and then raised to be this world teacher actually did become a pretty profound, uh, teacher. Um, and I read that at 17 and I didn't understand it, but I knew that that was definitely a path that I was going to, um, pursue, um, ironically, because his book is called like truth is a pathless land or something. So anyway, um, and then I took some time off of psychedelics at university and I got really into meditation and probably more in the form that, uh, I've heard you talk about it, Peter, like that kind of shamanic journeying yeah. and, you know, trying to encounter your spirit guides or animal guides and that kind of thing, or astral projection or trying to lucid dream, all of that good um, you know, foundational occult work. And yeah, I think it had been about three or four years since I'd had a psychedelic experience. And then when I was 22, I had one that just absolutely blew the roof off. 
And we could probably come back to that in greater detail, but that was kind of the um, an initiation experience for me. It was a awakening experience or Kensho or whatever you want to call it. But for me, that was kind of a point of no return. And there was everything that came before that and everything afterwards. And it just seemed to flip a switch in my brain that had a lot of permanent effects and led to some of the things that we talked about in terms of um, ideas around the nature of time and cycling and, um, boy, where to go from there? I guess we can come back to that. Um, Other highlights, when I was 28, I did a master's in religious studies, um, focusing on the work of Rudolf Steiner. And uh, yeah, ask me another question. <laughs> I was wondering uh, when you talk about the the chi ball, uh, you know, seeing the the same things happen on films, and then the you you created this ball, right? What do you think the relationship is between the film, the drugs, and what you were able to do? Do you think that the film put in your mind something that you were already able to do? Uh, do you think that the film almost if there had been something else on the film, then that would have been the thing that you'd have been able to do. Do you see what I mean? Like, how do you think the film influenced your what you were able to do? Do you think it, or do you think the film, do you think what happened on the film was something that was based on something that people could do? I'm not very good at asking questions, but I think hopefully you get what I mean. <laughs> uh, I think I do. Um, I think that the chi energy is very real in the sense that I'd say that. Um, your imagination is something that circulates through your body as an energy and you manipulate that through imagination. And that doesn't mean that it's just your imagination because it has real effects in terms of healing or like one of the other things that blew my mind about that when I was a kid was that um, I zapped my family with it and I could make a chi ball with them where they're holding a hand out and I'm holding my hand out and it's they're feeling this magnetic um, uh, traction or repulsion coming from my hand. And my family are like the least woo people, you know. My military yeah. dad was bragging to my mom that he'd made a uh. chi ball with me that was two feet wide, you know. And uh, <laughs> they, um, Yeah, so it's like, it's almost like, I guess you're saying then that that wasn't sort of almost implanted into the brains of your family by the film i'm guessing they didn't have the same the film didn't have the same impact on them as it did on you but they were still able to feel it so i suppose that answers the question in terms of it is something that's there it's not something that the film created for you and then became a it became a it's something that everyone can do yeah it's more um just being reminded to try a technique that works and i guess the film is based on you know, the film will be based on accounts of that actually happening. Oh, it was an actual performance of those. Uh, you'll have seen them, like when the Shaolin monks get on stage and they start sticking spears yeah. in their throat and that kind of thing. But yeah, they power yeah. up before they do it um, in various ways, different poses, you know, to build up the chi and circulate it to the right part of their body. And I am no expert on this. This is something that I dabbled with a lot from like 15 to 21 22 when i was at university i had a tai chi teacher and stuff but i'm i'm not an expert on it at all but i did learn how to circulate that energy very early on and 
that was one of the main inspirations behind a lot of what I went on to do. And you think that the the psychedelics almost sort of lubricated, you know, almost kind of made it so that you were able to do that, kind of almost grease the wheels, so to speak. Yeah, I think it um I think that psychedelics primarily intensify your concentration. And I guess you can kind of say raise your frequency, but they definitely seem to fill your body with energy. You just um your vibratory level just ramps up and ramps up, or at least this is how I often experience it. It kind of comes in waves. And so I end up trying to find a way to circulate that and externalize it or focus it. I definitely experienced that. Um, but that was when I was having a bad trip. Um, I felt like the energy come out, it like it like entered me like in vibrations, like from the floor. Um, I was listening to Pure Guava by Ween, which it probably wasn't a good idea, yeah, terrible to, idea. to start. Yeah, <laughs> uh, to start with. Um, and uh, and and yeah, so that was about five hours of um, of like uh, existential uh, nightmarish dread. Uh, after that, uh, I should have ha- had the foresight to try and <laughs> direct that energy into a cue ball, uh, but instead, I kind of I kind of just had a, a horrible time. Yeah, it's um, definitely more of a negative experience when it's just sort of vibrating chaotically through your field. Yeah, and um, if you can smooth that out, then that tends to be when the the juicy visuals start to manifest. But uh, I know what you mean. It's interesting because you mentioned about imagination and you know using your imagination to do something like that, like you were saying with the chi ball and you were saying something along the lines of just because it's your imagination doesn't mean it's not real, which I think is is a really interesting point because people tend to want to put in that division, don't they? You know, the old Cartesian divide between, you know, like what's real as in here uh, that we're experiencing in this very moment in the material world as real and your imagination as being not real. When obviously your imagination is real because it's something, you know, it's something that you're thinking or experiencing um, and it is an actual thing that is real. And I suppose I was coming around to asking you about what you think is the link between imagination, creativity and reality and whether imagination and creativity can be used to manipulate reality. Wow, we're really getting into the heavy philosophical questions early. We don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't fuck around here. <laughs> okay, um, how to break that down. So I would say that I, I kind of run in two different camps in the Western magical approach to things and the Eastern more Buddhist meditation approach to things broadly speaking i can kind of divide it up that way um and i think in a lot of popular culture today in the west both of those broadly speaking traditions tend to get filtered through a materialistic worldview and i think i come at it from more of a platonic idealist worldview Um, so for me, I would say there isn't any real separation between my imagination and the physical world. I see them as kind of, you could say different densities and different, um, degrees to which you can manipulate them 
purely through the power of imagination, um, which sounds pretty unlikely to a lot of people. I know that. Um, but that is how I see it. And I've had enough experiences to kind of confirm that that's possible. Um, even to the point of, well, I suppose with the, with the chi, you could say, oh, that's just the physical energy of your body that, you know, somebody else is feeling. But I've also been on meditation retreats where, you know, you visualize something and somebody else can see it. Or I am in a hall doing ayahuasca with 50 people. I see an entity enter the room. I see somebody else try to fight it off. Um, so those interactions, I think, are taking place all the time. And the more you become aware of them, the more you begin to notice those at a subtle level. Um, you know, things like picking up on thoughts of other people telepathically, that kind of thing. Um and I suppose you can still think of that from a materialistic perspective, but yeah, I come at it from the world is essentially imagination or in the Eastern sense of waking up to the idea that this is a dream. Um, and I would say that it's a lucid dream for some more than others that you can learn to manipulate with your imagination. This is really interesting. It's very, very similar to what Roger Giamane was saying, who's our guest uh, just recently right. um who who'd been a, a a monk in the tibetan buddhist tradition and he was talking about you know awakening to this reality being illusory um and and that once you start to realize that then it, you are able to manipulate it and he gave us a few really interesting examples of monks and lamas that he'd known who who could manipulate it seemingly at will Right. See, I would just, I would, I would say um, that I wouldn't even call it illusory just from my perspective um, saying it's a dream. I'm just trying to point out, I'm not trying to like um, critique your monk, um, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't dare. Got it wrong. Lost in translation. But I would, I would just say, um, you know, some, uh, some levels are more manipulable than others. Obviously you can control your thoughts better than you can the keyboard. Um but I think that there's an infinite range of degrees between those two, um, most ethereal and most solid. Um, but yeah, yeah, I agree. What's interesting about your approach is that it seems to be at least in equal parts hands-on, very practical experiences of this rather than, I know that you have read a lot and I know that from talking to you before and, and we'll talk a bit about what you've read later and, and that kind of thing, but you do, you seem to have, you know, you, you dived in at an early age with the psychedelics and, and then the body energy and all that kind of thing. And often when I'm talking to you, we talk about, your own personal experience rather than just something that you've read in a book. Um, how is that attitude of wanting to kind of get your fingernails dirty in this stuff? 
How do you think that that has influenced the way in which your own personal practice has developed? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> I think that this is probably the only area of my life where I would say I'm like a first principles thinker. Right. If you know what I mean? Like, um, I've got friends who are just natural born musicians and they can just pick up any instrument and it's clear that they're understanding how to play at a deeper level than me who just played piano for 12 years, but I can't jam, you know, or I have that with art more than some people who learn to paint like Bob Ross and that's just what they do. Um, so I've always been more interested in kind of figuring out the foundational principles that make magic work or what is enlightenment, what is awakening, what is initiation, what do we really mean by that, as opposed to learning to do the meditation correctly and hoping that the teacher tells me at some point that I've done the thing, you know? And I think I'm pretty skeptical as well of um, kind of handing over my um, sort of my personal narrative to teachers and that kind of thing, because I've, you know, there's a lot of squirrely teachers out there. And there's also a lot of people who have only really studied in one tradition. And I've had experiences of this where because I'm coming to a meditation retreat and I'm not part of that lineage or something, I don't know the lingo. And even though I might have 15 years of very relevant experience that is parallel to what they're talking about, because I'm not putting it in those particular technical terms, they basically say, you haven't gotten anywhere. You're on rung one of the ladder, you know, when later on down the line, when I understand things better, I realize, oh, that person just didn't understand how to map what I was expressing onto their map. But now I can see that, you know, you've just dismissed a decade of my practice, um, so I think it's important to kind of map your own path. That's one reason. Another reason is just, I think um, it is more validating if, for example, if you're trying to describe your experiences in the astral plane or something, uh, if you can describe that very uh, particularly, and then look up if that relates to anything on, you know, traditional, like, uh, say you are in contact with an angel, you get the name of the angel, you get all of the qualities and attributes of this angel through your encounter with them. Then you look up, oh, wow, I've just been talking to this angel. This name matches to all of these attributes that are traditionally ascribed to that angel then you know you've made contact with something. Whereas if you go in and say, okay, I've studied all of the qualities of this angel, I'm going to try and you know invoke it or evoke it. Um, you, so you can kind of like pre-script your experience if you're studying first and then um, practicing later. Yeah. You know? The most potent experiences that I've had have been the ones that have been completely unexpected. Right. You know, because if you yeah. go to it, like you, basically, like you were saying, if you go to a retreat and they say, oh, you know, let's all lie down and we'll all experience this together, then, you know, 90% of the room are going to experience that thing, 
you know, yeah. did you meet Mother Ayahuasca? Of course, yeah. I met Mother Ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do it yeah, wrong, yeah. did I? Yeah, but then yeah. if you go out into the woods and you see something like completely freaky, um, and you know that th- th- wasn't in your head, and that you don't know where it came from, and you know, or whatever, then that is like you're saying that is more interesting. You know, that is like what was that? You know, wh- how do I? what do I do with that experience? You know, how does that relate to me? And, and so on, you know, it seems like a much more, um, raw and, um, pure experience. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that I, um, believed Hein, your, um, when you told me your, your experiences with, uh, with journeying is that the sort of sorts of imagery and the sorts of things that you were seeing were so unlike anything I'd heard you talk about before. It isn't the sorts of things that, you know, would be in the kinds of films you'd watch or whatever, you know, or the kind of imagery that you would naturally be attracted to, just as everyone has a particular, you know, things and imagery and aesthetic that they're attracted to. But the stuff that you told me about was so completely left field from what you, uh, from almost the visual language that you normally internally speak. Yeah. Um, That sort of that was, you know, I was like, yeah, this is, you know, he's obviously not making this up because it's like if he was going to make it up, it wouldn't have sounded, it wouldn't have been like this. And I think, um, I guess, like from what you were both saying as well, it's almost like if it was too obvious, if it was too close to you, then it wouldn't necessarily have the effect of making you think and changing your life, you know, in terms of how you interpret yeah. it, you're not going to look, if it's something that's like really obvious to you and really like, oh, well, this is this and this means this. So I've already got this all worked out. Whereas if something's presented to you that's completely confusing and completely left field, then that's the sort of experience that is actually going to be initiatory and is actually going to be something that will lead you to lead to kind of some kind of brain change something that will actually fucking confuse you and blow your mind rather than something that you already have in a box marked you know this is obviously a symbol telling me to do this or whatever um i could be wrong i don't know just (laughs) no I, i like that yeah no i agree i think um it should be unexpected because all of the imagery and descriptions and things that you find in books about what the spiritual world or the astral plane or whatever is going to look like, what you're going to encounter. This is just somebody's best idea to describe an experience. So there's already that dilution and reduction. And then it also is always going to show up in a subjective way to them. There's always, you know, some signal and some noise, the noise being their personal projections onto the being or the landscape that they're encountering So you've got several levels of filtering there when it comes down to you through a book or through a teacher's description of it. And if you go in expecting to see what they've described, then you're never going to encounter the thing that you need to see to have that initiatory experience or, you know, what is your higher self? You know, what does that actually look like? That kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, I think it's important to have a creative approach and use the studying to sort of check back in and make sure you're not insane or you haven't gone totally off the deep end in some area that (laughs) doesn't make any sense. But to kind of, I mean, maybe that's not appropriate for everybody, but certainly for me, leading with my own creativity. Yeah, I like it. I think it's a really refreshing approach and and. 
I mean, as you make it sound really obvious, but it, 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 <laughs> if, 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 if it feels it feels quite unique, you know. Like I don't speak to a lot of people who have that attitude towards the occult or esoteric practice or magic. Um, and I normally ask this question towards the end of the podcast, but I think we're getting into it now. Um, can you recommend like how our listeners could start to develop their own practice in, in your style, in, in the way that you're sort of self-guided style? Um, I think one of the huge things for me has been keeping a diary. Um, I haven't been great with dream journaling. I've done that on and off, but obviously that's helpful because that is as a subjective, um, an archetypal language as you're going to get, you know, it's so personal to you. So yeah, paying attention to dreams, but then just, um, you know, recording your daily experiences, not just in the nuts and bolts, but what are the themes of your life? What, you know, I always ask people this when they're like struggling with some issue or they've had five bad things happen to them in three days. And it's like, have you noticed a theme between those five bad things? And it's like, oh, and sometimes you can really pinpoint it. And it's like, oh, it's all of the archetype of this being or this myth or something that's playing out in my life. Um, so, yeah, I think noticing themes, tracking synchronicities, another way to you know put it, um, because that is a synchronicity. If you notice five things all happen that are have yeah. this a-causal connecting principle of a mythology or a comic book story or whatever it is, you're like, wow, how has that entered my life? Um, so yeah, just paying attention to your own life and not uh, discounting your own experience. Um, you know, and just in a general, like I read this book, uh, Writing Down the Bones recently. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Great book. Uh, and it's a writer who is a Zen student and her Zen teachers hold her to make writing her Zen practice. And one of the big takeaways I got from that book was that she basically said, you know, when people start writing about their life, they discover that they have the most rich, magical life anyone has ever lived, even if it's in their crummy apartment in Detroit or whatever, and they've never been anywhere and they've never done anything. It's it's just how zoomed in are you on your own world? And if you go in with the assumption that nothing magical has ever happened to you, but if you read this book published by so-and-so, then maybe you can get some of what they've got. You're never going to get it. And it's just a case of, um, you know, both of those forms of writing, it, they're just techniques like meditation for increasing your awareness of the subtlety of pattern, whether it's visual patterns, whether it's patterns of events in your life, patterns of emotions, patterns of energy in your body. It's just like they're all practices for almost increasing the resolution of, you know, the visual display. It's like getting better graphics in your life. And, um, you know, when you do that, everything becomes a magical technique. What do you think these patterns are? Because what what you're talking about here is finding synchronicities, finding patterns within your life, finding patterns within your body, finding patterns within time. Where do these patterns come from, do you think? <laughs> I mean, are, are these sort of like, are you thinking in some sort of way like the golden ratio, you know, that everything has inbuilt patterns within it that are maybe like the structure of, 
what's holding up reality or, or whatever. Yeah, I guess uh, I, I, I get a sense of your question. It just feels like it's opening up such a giant can of worms. I'm trying to figure out <laughs> how yeah. to find a way into that. Um, what are the patterns? So I think, well, they're fractal, first of all. Um, I guess, generally speaking, I would say that space-time and consciousness are three things that arise together and vanish together. Um, that's one of the fundamental things you learn from insight meditation. And they are fractal. And you can go infinitely down and infinitely up in scale. And that means that when you begin paying attention to the flow of time, and what I really mean by that, or one way of doing that, you can pay attention to the events in your life, but in a meditation sense, you're paying attention to the flow of thoughts and the themes of those thoughts. Um, and I started doing that through meditation. I started doing it through recording it in my diary until I came up with symbols for these different themes that kept arising and then beginning to map that they are arising in a cyclical repetitive order and that it had this very mathematically precise kind of interval structure. It wasn't just in order. It was that, oh, I'm in this for three days and then this for three days and this for three days. Um, and fractal in that within that three days, I'm in this for four hours and this for four hours and that kind of thing. So I was exploring it just by watching my mind and recording what happened and watching it at different scales, whether in a one hour sit in meditation or over the course of a week or over the course of months, just recording my diary. What is it that, you know, gets into deeper questions about cosmology um, for me, I guess I could take a crack at it. It implies that, um, the end and the beginning arise simultaneously in a cosmic sense. Um, and you know, I could be wrong, but this is sort of my favorite hypothesis that I've come to just from tracking patterns of time. Um, so the future is already present there is a teleology pulling us forwards, but I also hold on to the notion of free will. And I don't look at it as there is one first cause at the beginning of time, and we are the deterministic after effects of that first cause. Um, I see it as we are all a first cause in each moment altering the whole timeline. And I don't really see how magic works otherwise. I don't see how free will works otherwise. Um, and that's uh, a strong source of meaning for me, is um, having a cosmology or a worldview based on my experiences that can kind of re-rescue the sacred from that deterministic model that a lot of systems are still kind of hampered by, in my humble opinion. Wow. That's, Did yeah. that make any sense? Yeah, that's yeah. Um, 
that's absolutely fascinating stuff. The, the patterns that you're talking about, um, it'd be great if we could go into that a bit more. I was wondering, do they do they happen over the course of years? Is it? Yeah, is it, like I said, you can zoom. Far? Yeah, you can zoom all the way in and all the way out. It kind of almost reminds me of music. Like it'd be interesting to see what you did. What would happen if you, you know, like uh, the harmonic harmonic right. scales or whatever mm. and like uh-huh. you know it's all like divisions and subharmonics and stuff of uh, you know right. music and mathematics yeah, and stuff yeah yeah the same note recurring at like set mathematical in- intervals yeah so yeah. I was thinking like what would happen if you map that to music somehow that is a fascinating idea Stephen yeah um, hit me up if you ever want to try <laughs> we it we should work so, together on that yeah 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 because um, yeah. it might make this like colossal drone that could bring world peace or it might not <laughs> I don't know but I bet it would sound possibly incredible I don't know hopefully uh, yeah I yeah, mean that would be a great it. test of the theory wouldn't it it's like if your theory sounds like crap when you translate it into uh, Stephen Buckley's music drone then uh-huh. uh, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, you it's weren't just onto a, anything I guess it's just that whole thing isn't it how music is essentially mathematics and the mm. whole idea of like the music of the spheres and stuff when I started to think about right. it on a bigger scale I was like that but yeah, um, yeah it's Oh, it's a pretty well, mind blowing thing. We we had a guest on called um, Paul Weston, uh, yeah, yeah, guy from Glastonbury. Who's I think he's kind of done a similar thing with like keeping a a diary every day. And then yeah, Peter was telling me about uh, Paul Weston stuff and that he does it more in terms of the um, Gregorian calendar. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he he does a diary. Um, I, I, if I'm understanding what he does right, um, he he keeps a diary, which is basically he condenses um, each day into a line. Um, and then he, he he does a line for every day, and then and then yeah. he goes back and looks at what was happening on this day, you know, one year ago, two years ago, three years ago, whatever. But this brings me on to something that I've been looking forward to asking you about, which is something we talked about last time you were tattooing me, which is your particular method of doing this, your particular calendar that you devised to illustrate and document and discover these synchronicities or patterns or moments recurring moments um would you be able to talk about that a little bit yeah i guess that brings us on to the timepiece and the calendar so the timepiece was the first one i created that came after a few years of keeping track of this in my diary at a sort of day-to-day week-to-week month-to-month scale and i i found that there was eight levels or eight um, patterns. No, sorry. There is eight cycles that I would continually cycle through. And at the each, at the end of each of these, I would have like a big dream or some kind of very meaningful encounter or something that marked the end of that and the beginning of the next one. And I initially, um, thought that these fit the archetypes of the planets, um, eight of them, uh, earth to Saturn, including sun and moon. And then I later came to uh, think of it in terms of the I Ching trigrams. And uh, I'd read my Terrence McKenna Invisible Landscape. Um, so I was already interested in the I Ching from, for that reason. Um, but I had a very different system to McKenna. Um, and then I was just listening to like, I noticed that I could see these patterns just in people's conversations over the course of like an hour. And I thought, wow, okay, you can zoom all the way in to that scale. I need a 
device to track it at that level. So I had a friend who is like a bit of a tinkerer, bone carver, um, craftsman. And we made this timepiece together with these three wheels carved out of bone. It was a very steampunk looking device that looked, <laughs> made me look like a permanent LARPer when I wore this for like six <laughs> months. It's got a lot of weird looks. But it was a ton of fun to walk around and just um, track the symbolic meaning of my daily experience moment to moment. And that's when I started to notice like, oh, certain people in my life have these characteristics. They represent that planet or that trigram to me. So like I have a friend who always gets in touch when I enter Mercury and she's a teacher who travels the world teaching English as a foreign language. And she also is a history teacher, all these very mercurial things. And, you know, for a long period, I could tell like, oh, when I enter Mercury, she's probably going to get in touch. I have the same thing with my brother. He's very Saturnian. Um, and sometimes you can almost feel it coming off of people. It's almost like a different form of reading auras or something where you're like, whoa, I'm getting a lot of... Uh, I don't know, whatever the planet is off of this person. Um, so I made this timepiece and I was tracking that trigram cycle. And uh, a few years into that, I started thinking about, well, if it zooms all the way in, uh, I need to make a map of it zoomed all the way out. So I made a 365 millimeter long calendar with one millimeter for a one-line summary of each day in my calendar. Um, I was writing in very tiny writing. And okay, so now I need to tell you about the mirror trip I had, or the Garuda trip, uh, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is where the calendar inspiration came from. Sorry, it's hard to try and get this all in order. Um, so I had a mushroom trip. And in this trip, it started off pretty dark. And uh, I encountered the kind of guardian of the threshold, I guess you could call it. I usually meet some kind of demonic, horrible entity that I need to get past to get to the good stuff. And this time it showed up as a giant sci-fi centipede creature coming down a tunnel towards me. But this creature, when it got up close, turned out to be made out of baby photos of myself which wow. was a really strange <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> um, and Incredible. <laughs> yeah. There's like no subtlety well, to that dark. metaphor. No, there? there really it's isn't. Right on yeah. the nose. <laughs> you would think that an artistic imagination might come up with a less crude representation. But anyway, um, and my response was to think, okay, if this is made by my imagination, then I can make something worse to deal with it. And then I had this giant like battle I thought of it as a battle owl coming down and basically uh, defeating this serpent. And then I got on to the, the rest of the trip. Um, but that was sort of the, the thematic image for me or that main central archetype of that trip. And I saw it as representing my past and my future. Or, yeah, it was like my timeline crawling towards me and me not being um, uh, sort of enslaved to it, you know, it not consuming me, not being beholden to that deterministic um, timeline. And it also, you know, later in the trip, I was kind of getting this information about this notion of like mirror points in time, 
that when you have a profound experience like you know any big event in your life but a psychedelic a high dose psychedelic experience is probably going to be one of these it is kind of like a rock dropped into a still pond and the uh, effects of that ripple out in both directions in past and future and so i knew i had to make this calendar when i came down and the first thing i noticed when i plotted this was that trip i think was on like july 17th and i had tripped i think towards like the end of january most years that was kind of like my psychedelic new year or beginning of february kind of time but i would still i would just trip when i felt like it you know roughly like maybe four times a year every three months something like that but i wasn't choosing the date you know for any reason and i found that i had tripped exactly like 182 and a half days between the first trip in January, the summer trip, and then the trip at the beginning of the next year. So exactly six months between those without any planning. And so what I began doing was I just took a compass and I would put the point on the trip in July and I would put the lead on any meaningful event that happened before or after it. And then I would just draw the arc around to the other side of the calendar to see what event it landed on and if it was relevant to the event equidistant from the center point. Does that make sense? Can you picture that? I'm just drawing an arc around the trip and I was pretty astonished by the results I got. I mean, to some extent I expected this to work, but not quite as well as it did because it was like um, the beginning of that year, just to give some examples, beginning of that year, I broke up with a girlfriend of like two years I, to the day when I uh, moved it to the other side, that was the day I met my wife. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and I dated a couple of girls between those two. I went back to the last date I had with the first girl I dated. And that was next to or equidistant to the first date I had with the next girl. Uh, I got my own room in my tattoo studio in spring that year. And the day that I got that room... In fall, uh, my boss tried to fire me, and I vowed that I would get my own studio. Um, I had another one where I'd gone to train at a Thai boxing gym in Newcastle in the spring. I think that's, uh, I don't know if I'm remembering this one right, but it was like I'd gone to train at a Thai boxing gym, which was unusual for me uh, to train in another gym. And, uh, and then I accepted a cage fight on the other day you know, equidistant from the trip. So I was just full of these crazy synchronicities. And unfortunately I have not had the time to map out like the next 10 years or 12 years or whatever it's been since I made that. Um, But it would have to be like a very long scroll and a very big compass. So I feel like I need like an app developer or somebody to help me create something where I can just zoom out and zoom in and uh, represent that in a easier to navigate way. I've got, I've got a lot of questions about this, but I'm just going to try and boil it down to two. <laughs> so, right. my first one is: Have you ever considered going in deeper into, like, say, I don't know, like an audio recording or something, and see, like, zoom into that? And and I wonder if, like, even within like the cadence of like the not even the cadence, because that applies to speech. I'm talking about even deeper into like the waveforms, whether they fit the same pattern. That's a fascinating idea. 
I mean, yeah. well, you're getting into um, also at that like point, micro like, kind of. Yeah. So, like when I was saying that imagination um, and the physical world are just on a spectrum, it's that same kind of idea. Is like architecture is frozen music. Um, yeah, I yeah, think that's yeah. actually literally true. And um, like one of the one of the things about the cycles is that you can watch them run down to an infinite speed. Like you can track them and a 12-year cycle becomes a three-year cycle or becomes a four-year cycle, becomes a one-and-a-half-year cycle, and on and on and on until you can say there is a particular day when that cycle becomes like frozen and it's just cycling at an infinite speed. And I think it becomes manifest in space at that point is one way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of like Chinese internal alchemy, those kinds of practices are based on exactly this. It's like there is a fractal harmony to space time and consciousness that we are trying to um, bring our organism into alignment with at every level. And you know, maybe that's a way to think about opening of chakras and that kind of thing. It's like when all of these subtle patterns in your system harmonize and, you know, becomes something like a new organ of perception or it gives rise to a new form of awareness or you become aware of a new aspect of the world. But that thing about music, I love the uh, the angle that you're taking it there. I don't know. It sounds that's like there's a the, lot of experiments. That, yeah, it came to my head. Like, I guess that you've kind of answered my second question, which was, is this just something that you think applies? I'm guessing that you, you don't think this, that it's just something that applies to you because you're special, you're the main character. This is something that everyone... Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is, a, it is a, a thing, isn't it, where people can get into that and can think, oh, yeah. I must be amazing because all this is happening to me, but your angle seems to be more, this is something that's accessible to everyone if they look for it. Oh yeah. There's absolutely nothing special about me. Um, I, I mean, no man, you seem pretty amazing, but <laughs> <laughs> you can't even see him. So, um, I mean, it's, uh, I could talk about some of the advantages of it for just, uh, everyday use or um, people who aren't necessarily deep into this kind of work. Um, like in meditation, there's a bit of a debate around whether or not it's a help or a hindrance to have a map of the territory that you're likely to move through. And, you know, debates around how how predictable is progress? You know, does everybody move through this same set of stages? Um, so I'd say that the the map I'm talking about in terms of just the structure of space-time is also a map of um, a path to awakening or a path to initiation or something. And it's also a map of how um, children develop, uh, but in reverse. Um, sorry, that's kind of throwing a whole other thing in there. But it's also a map of how people's relationships evolve. Like I've watched my marriage move through these same stages that I've moved through in meditation, that conversations move through just in ordinary life. And um, yeah, I'm trying to think of where to go with that. It's interesting um, that you mentioned before, um, you mentioned harmony. Yeah. And 
Because I, I was thinking that, especially when Buckley related it to music, you're, if you're thinking of these patterns in terms of a, like a musical repeating thing, then surely being able to recognize these patterns is the first step in being able to harmonize things within your life. Uh, yes and no. Um, I wouldn't say that, no, I would say that it's not necessary. Um, but I get where you're coming from. It's certainly helpful, but, um, I haven't actually focused on this kind of mapping, uh, for a while. It's just something that's constantly going on in the background. I'm sort of always aware of it, but I used to be really obsessed with it. And, you know, I could have set up my own like inner astrology consultancy or something and, you know, help people to create their own maps. And, you know, maybe that would still be a good idea at some point. But um, the thing that moved me deeper into focusing on like insight meditation and that kind of thing was the awareness that as long as I'm still just becoming aware of where I'm at in a cycle and then sort of using that to orient myself and figure out how to tackle a particular issue or something, I'm still one step behind. I'm like, I'm coming at it from being in the wrong place at the wrong time and trying to get into the right place. I guess what I mean is it's still just a purely logical exercise at that point. Whereas what I, what my ideal was, was kind of more of a Taoist idea of you're naturally in the right place at the right time right, without okay. needing to know why, you know, you bend over just as the arrow whizzes over your head mm -hmm. and you didn't even know the arrow was fired and you're just going about your business. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it can actually have the opposite effect. You can get very neurotic about this stuff. Um, if you're in a bad place, if you're going through a dark night of the soul or something, the map can become not your friend. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, I was going to say, like, I mean, that uh, the, obviously, sort of, the, the more I've thought about it, the more like you could, there would be a temptation to look at when you were going to die. And that could, you know, to, to a certain type of brain, that could actually be quite harmful, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, take the mirror point and go to your birth and then extrapolate. <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to know what the midpoint would be you know yeah maybe yeah. if i have a really great experience when i'm like 42 i'm gonna be like that's it i'm dead at 84 <laughs> nothing can top that that's the most meaningful thing that will ever happen to yeah. me i think what you said about not fo almost not focusing on it too much is probably important and i think that's probably you know as a as a chronic overanalyzer I think I, I, I'm best staying away from this pretty <laughs> cool system because it is like, you know, I, I know what I'd do. I'd, I'd abuse it and then I'd just end up getting properly fixated on like, you know, well, a terrible thing happened to me, you know, three years ago, whatever at this point. So, you know, um, right. it's like, yeah, it, I can see what you're saying. Like, but, but I suppose it's interesting because that, that method of, uh, that kind of approach to life of kind of almost, letting things happen a bit more and not trying, trying to control everything is actually recommended in a lot of different ways by a lot of different types of people. And, you know, whether it be within magic or meditation or mental health, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I mean, even in, um, 
systems which are very focused on transcendence and um, insight into emptiness and that kind of thing. You know, I'm thinking about like um, Hindu tantra practitioners, that kind of thing. They're still often into astrology. You know, they still take that um, pattern tracking cosmological perspective and apply it for certain reasons, but they just don't make that their sole practice. So I think it's definitely something to have as a tool and it is very powerful. And I also, you know, can kind of use it as a teacher to orient myself. Like I said about, you know, having sort of sovereignty over your own personal narrative and understanding where you are in your path. Um, It can really help when you get blindsided by a sudden emotion or a string of bad luck or something, it can be really helpful to, you know, be able to turn to your maps and be like, Oh, I get it. And re, um, gain a new meaningful perspective, a reframing of that experience that does orient you towards skillful means of how to deal with it. Yeah. Um, That's what I use it for. Yeah. Like you're using it as a tool for reflection, not as like a guiding principle. Yeah. You want to, uh, you want to sort of come back to it as a, you, you want to lead with your, your will and your emotions and, uh, you know, use the mind sparingly as a tool but this is a very powerful and useful way to use your mind in my humble opinion. And for people who are still fully at the mind level, um, like I'll give you just a small anecdote of ways that I've gotten some use out of it in the past. I had a friend who was a pretty troubled older guy in his fifties, ex special forces uh, is a tattoo client of mine, uh, troubled past I taught him how to meditate. He'd been into it for a few years and was, you know, what I would say was, uh, you know, he was progressing through these insight cycles and I could tell that he was, he had broken through to what I call sun, uh, based on the planets. And I had sort of been tracking his intervals of how long he's in each planet for. And if somebody is meditating for an hour a day every day, it's pretty easy to assume that they're going to keep progressing in similar intervals. And I said, all right, you know, this is awesome. I'm glad you're, you know, getting somewhere with it in about six months. I think you're probably going to shift into Mars. And I think all of your stuff from, you know, your sort of trauma or anything from your military days, any issues around aggression, violence, Um, that's going to come up and that's going to be the theme that you're going to have to deal with in your meditation. And, uh, and then I didn't see him for a while. And the next time I saw him, we went out, uh, went out to the pub. I could tell he wasn't quite his normal self. And I was like, are you okay, dude? He's like, I'm going to go to Syria, mate. And (laughs) and this is when everything was kicking off in Syria and they had like people, you know, mercenaries from the UK and the US were going over there to fight. And I was like, are you sure that's a good idea? And I was like, do you remember me telling you that you're going to shift into Mars in about six months? And that was like six months ago. And just like that, that this light bulb went on in his head, like, oh, and he understood why I was so into the maps. And that totally shifted his sense that, 
oh, maybe I shouldn't go to Syria. Maybe this is just a lot of traumatic emotion coming up that's driving me to escape my present moment by taking out my aggression on a foreign enemy as opposed to dealing with it inside myself. Um, so yeah. it can be useful in that way, even if um, people aren't aware of their own maps. That's quite amazing. And do you think that everyone has their own unique maps or do you think that everyone follows the patterns that you've been able to identify? Um, I, I'm definitely a pretty strong perennialist in the sense, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, it's the idea that, uh, all of these different traditions are mapping basically the same territory with their own cultural overlays. Um, however, I mean, I think you could slice up the pie in 12 pieces instead of 10 or eight. Um, and I think that like, there's at least three different cycles layered on top of each other that I track. So different systems could be layered on once or based on one cycle or another cycle. They don't necessarily all correlate. Um, but generally speaking, I would say that yes, there is one sort of fractal space time orb <laughs> that uh, <laughs> we are all mapping in our own ways with our own cultural uh, imagery and symbolism. Do you think would happen if uh, you time traveled? Like, would it, I know that sounds like a flippant question, but actually, think about it. Because would it? Would it? Yeah. Would the would the cycles sort of split somehow, or would they? No, I think it's uh, it's that ripple effect. Um, again, this is just my favorite pet theory of cosmology, but I don't see how any of uh, my experience makes sense otherwise. Um, I would say that the timeline would remain self-consistent and cause and effect would not be broken. Um, but it's sort of like if you pull a guitar string at one point, the entire string moves. So, you know, the past and the future are still at the same points, but the entire, right. But they still have to bend upwards towards that finger that has plucked the string 
uh, or you can take an example from uh, like Eric Wargo's book Time Loops, where oh, yeah. he he says that I don't know, I'm not a mathematician. He claims that the mathematics has been done on this that shows that yeah. if you fire a billiard ball through a wormhole in the past to knock another billiard ball off its course, then that billiard ball will end up on a trajectory that sends it through a wormhole in the future to knock itself off in the past. So that timeline remains consistent. It's another way of saying you can't go back in time and kill your grandfather. Yeah. Um, that somehow it just doesn't happen. So Fuck. yeah, I, I, um, I don't, yeah, I don't see that as hard to swallow really. Because if it does remain self-consistent, you wouldn't know if you'd change the past or not. It's kind of hard to prove and hard to disprove. Yeah. Do, do you think that this, how does this affect your, this this kind of knowledge and this sort of um, system of thinking? How does it affect your kind of day-to-day life and your relationship with time on a, on a daily, everyday basis rather than on a sort of magical basis? <laughs> If it does hmm. at all. Good question. My relationship with time. Um, well, the most obvious thing is just the fact that I'm constantly aware of it cycling and I'm constantly interpreting the events in my life in that way, but in an automatic sense, in the same way that you notice the weather and the weather is always cycling um, or your breath is always cycling. It just becomes natural like that becomes it becomes like a second language essentially um at a deeper more immediate level um there's stages in insight meditation practice where you can break through to a sense of this moment being the big bang um that there is that uh, this is what i think people mean by emptiness the experience of true emptiness is the experience of being the first cause and the sort of buddhist notion of everything being dependently originated everything is um co-arising um that is a way of talking about this it's um everything is fluid Everything is empty and just a very strong sense that the entire world could just fold up like an origami bird in a second. <laughs> That's really abstract. That is one hell of a soundbite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I, like I guess it. that's going off in a more sort of immediate energetic sense, but I guess that's an example of um, if you... Uh, bring those patterns down to that subtle, like you were talking about the musical level and I was talking about the inner alchemy energetic level, the experience of emptiness that is described by meditators, I think is the result of that. It's the experience of that sort of, you could say it's like cycling at infinite speed. It's like as soon as an experience has arisen that you would take to be solid and actually occurring, it vanishes and is replaced by a new timeline. Not that it's a multiverse. It's the same timeline, but it's different from what it was a moment ago. That's more of my sense now. Um, 
I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> <laughs> you should write a book. Boy, boy, I wish I had the time. Yeah. Um, well, I'll ask Hein to stop. Stop well, you know, I, uh, <laughs> it, it's actually um, really nice to just have this conversation with you guys because, like, um, I have tried to sit down and write this stuff out, and it just feels like such a colossal set of concepts that I feel like I need to do a PhD or something um, to begin, and it just never ends up going anywhere. But uh, it comes out in a pretty easy free flow when I'm just having a conversation about it and I have people to bounce off of. So, um yes thanks for uh planting the seed or stimulating that that's what we're here for so there's two things that i wanted to circle back to that we talked about um if you're happy to and one was you mentioned that when you were about 22 you had like a mega trip that was initiatory in its nature right. um are you happy to talk about that trip a little bit Yes, I will try and keep it concise because a lot happened. Uh, <laughs> um, so that was February 13th, 2009. It wasn't a huge dose. It was like three and a half grams or something of uh, cubensis mushrooms, I believe. And it wasn't even a great trip. Um there was like three other people in the room that had housemates walking in and out, interrupting it. <laughs> one person had never tripped before and was terrified of the chandelier for some reason. <laughs> and uh, I, I actually thought I was down. I thought, or I thought I was just about down. And then suddenly I was just gone. Uh, that's the only way I can explain it. Um, well, I'll try again. Suddenly I was pure consciousness in a void. And... Uh, you know, it's an archetypal experience that people have. You could call it samadhi or different things. Um, and then I had a thought that was something like, this is cool. And, <laughs> and then it was like the Big Bang happened. And I was like a photon being hurled through this matrix of light with these different size sort of stars systems that I was moving through. And, you know, it's this golden light. And then that began to take on structure and color. And it was sort of watching the universe come into being from the point of pure consciousness. Uh, or even before that, you know, because I was out of, I was completely unconscious. And then I was conscious. And so the universe is manifesting itself in this experience and I feel like I'm descending and I see below me there like this patchwork of different artistic motifs. And I realize that I'm about to descend through this section like that was tattoo art and I'm falling through this realm of tattoo art. And I can see all of these like hyper cube, hyper dimensional objects moving past me that are different tattoo themes. Like, the hyper object that is every biker tribal tattoo ever gotten by anyone <laughs> or the hyper object that is every sailor, Jerry mermaid and a lighthouse and an anchor. And it's just shape shifting. And anyway, I'm moving through this domain, this realm, and then I'm back in my body and the world has remanifest around me. And I was just glowing with energy and, you know, I just felt one with the universe that archetypal thing, I won't bore you too much with the uh, indulgent emotions, but um, it took me like 20 minutes to be able to speak. And 
when I finally did, my buddies are asking me like, how was it or whatever? I said, I know where tattoo art comes from. (laughs) (laughs) And the weird thing about it was that I wasn't a tattoo artist. I was still at university. It wasn't for another nine months that I actually got a job as a tattoo artist and I wasn't planning to go into tattoo art. So that was one of the first, um, first experiences that kind of showed me that maybe you can experience the future or the past or you can get this um, bird's eye view on time as a landscape. Um, And also that you're experiencing a higher dimension. You know, there's, you are seeing everything as these hyperdimensional self-transforming objects. Um, So anyway, that was a cool experience, but I tripped enough to know that you get kind of an afterglow and then you come down and this was just taking me a really long time to come down. But then I woke up the next day and I was still there in that state of mind. It was like a pure non-dual experience. Um, you know, the keyboard and my arm felt like all part of the same body. Um, and I thought, well, this is cool, but it's probably going to go away sometime soon. And then by about day four, I was like, wow, okay, it's still here. Um, and I was having a lot of strange experiences during this time. I filled an entire journal in a week in tiny writing, just kind of downloading whatever, um, description of this new state of awareness, what it meant to me. Um, and I was having a lot of Kundalini phenomena, uh, especially when I fell asleep, I was like, I would, my body would fall asleep, but my mind would still be awake. Or it felt like this kind of intelligent energy entering my body. Uh, And it gets kind of weirder here. I was reading Carl Jung, or I had been before this. And I remember him talking about an active imagination. You should ask the entity its name. And I remember he had this spirit guide called Philemon. And uh, that was his tutelary spirit, he called it. So I thought the next time this energy enters my body at night, I'll ask its name. And, uh, sure enough that night it did. And, uh, I got the name Arcturus and I wrote that down with like three different spellings. And I wrote, uh, it sounds like a star, but apparently I didn't know at the time that it was a star. And then looking back, I was like, surely you knew it was a star, but I asked like all my family and they didn't know that Arcturus was a star. So maybe I didn't. And, um, I had read my Robert Anton Wilson and I knew that he was getting his messages from Sirius and he had had this experience on the 23rd of July when Sirius rises. So of course I went and looked up when Arcturus rises and it wasn't the exact day, but it was four days before that day. So it was close enough. Um, And, you know, I'm almost embarrassed kind of talking about it because like, the whole theosophical we are getting messages from the purple ray from the Pleiades and channeling the spirit guide. I can't help, but kind of sneer at some of it, but this is genuinely what happened to me. So you just have to be honest. Um, other weird experiences. I, I had one where I fell asleep and then I had an out of body experience and I was looking down at my body And I could see sort of like a subtle body over my body that I was a video game artist at the time at your, that's what I was studying at university. And my mind interpreted it as like the wire mesh of a video game character, you know, like the polygons. Yeah. But there was like intelligences working in my chest and like twisting that wire mesh into these knots of light. 
and um and I remember reading uh I think it was Frank Fool's Crow or another sort of Native American um teacher and he was talking about you know shamanic initiation experiences where you're dismembered and then you'll have like crystals put into your chest or jewels or something like that um so that seemed relevant to me I also um well I got into Rudolf Steiner I um I'd ordered two books just before this trip one was Rudolf Steiner's How to Know Higher Worlds and the other was Daniel Ingram's Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. So I had this East and West sort of um, Western occult influence and this Eastern hardcore meditation influence that I've followed for the next several decades. But Steiner also talks about uh, these spiritual intelligences that work on your etheric body when you're asleep and that they can create these centers of light in your chest and they're like centers of will that guide your activity later on. And again, I feel like this is really highfalutin self-indulgent, <laughs> but that's that's uh, that was my experience. And um, you know, one of the weirdest things, actually, and synchronistically, that I found out because I wrote my dissertation on Rudolf Steiner when I did my master's degree, um, and I found out because you know Steiner, he created the Waldorf school system. Um, that's how most people have heard of him before. It's a pretty popular alternative education system. Um, apparently, I found out during the course of my research, the original name he had for the Waldorf school system was the Arcturus Education Program. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, I actually looked that up again uh, a few years ago, and I couldn't find where I found that, but I'm pretty sure that was uh, that was what he originally called it. So. A lot of strange synchronicities, um, but the main thing, just to cut to the end, after about eight days, I came back to myself and back to my normal state of consciousness, which I was really not happy about. Uh, <laughs> um, but it wasn't the same state of consciousness. Like There was definitely a permanent shift, and the permanent shift was something that you hear a lot of people describe after they kind of cross a certain threshold with meditation is... Um, kind of permanently having a bird's eye view on your own thoughts. Sometimes they call it the witness. Um, and just me with my background or psychedelics or whatever, um, maybe reading Steiner, other things, I naturally didn't just focus on the witness or maintaining that distance, but I focused on tracking the patterns in the thoughts. And Steiner talks about this as sort of the beginnings of what he calls imaginative cognition, which he just uh, says it begins with thinking about thinking, not thinking about what did I just think about, but taking that bird's eye view and seeing that those five thoughts you just had are trying to map onto a higher dimensional inspirational object that is, you know, motivating those thought patterns. So, yeah, I, that was what really came out of that trip was, um, well, a lot of curiosity, a sudden interest in philosophy, the humanities generally. You know, I was just an artist and a martial artist before that. I wasn't really an intellectual in any way. Um, but, yeah, just a real love for that. And I think the first book, actually, that was really inspired me in this direction of tracking cycles was um, W.B. Yeats' A Vision. I don't know if you've come across that, but um, 
I was reading a book uh, which mentioned Ginsburg, Allen Ginsburg, and said that when he was on trial for uh, the poem Howl, he spent the entire time in court just uh, reading this book, A Vision, which I think was actually channeled by Yeats's wife. Like uh, a lot of great occult text channeled yeah. by the wife to give credit where it's due. <laughs> but, but he has a very elaborate system in there where he uses it as um, he's mainly focusing on the cycles of the moon uh, and he's using them as uh, personality types and he also maps them onto history. So he gives this very elaborate account of history over thousands of years and how each of them are representations of these various cycles. So yeah, that was a big inspiration on my thinking. And then uh, Daniel Ingram's work, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, he is similarly obsessed with cycles, um, but he sees them as the fractal cycles of meditation insight practice, the path to enlightenment. And I have a talk to him about... Um, well, have you noticed that these cycles also affect the people around you and that these are, you know, taking place in the world out there? And he says, you know, well, everybody notices that, um, but um, didn't seem to share my intense curiosity about, well, shouldn't we think more about that? <laughs> <laughs> he does. He's actually a pretty accomplished magician. Um, but uh, yeah, I seem to have just been particularly bitten by this bug. Um it's so, interesting yeah. that you raised that at that point, because the second thing I was going to come back to was insight meditation. And I was wondering if you could give us um, a description of what that is and how people can start their own practice doing that. Ooh. Um, so insight meditation. Um, you'll often hear meditation practice uh, broken into two major categories. You've got your concentration practice and your insight practice. And... Insight practice is another way of saying insight into emptiness um, or emptiness teachings. And that is really where the transcendence of ego or the uh, realization of the non-permanent nature of your self um, comes from. That's how you become aware of that. Whereas concentration practices, <clears throat> they're they're very useful for that as well. They make insight practice uh, easier to do. Um, but you could use them to just solidify your sense of ego and just use them for, you know, manipulating the world through magical effects, that kind of thing. When you talk about concentration practice, is that like focus on breath or focus on a mantra? Yeah, any meditation object could be a candle flame, could be the breath, could be different body parts. Um, could be just an imaginative object, you know, the classical, just visualize a blue ball or a white cross or a red triangle or any of those things. Um, and just really, you know, strengthening your ability to control your imagination. And obviously that's immensely useful in magical practice. Um, but if also as an insight practice. And I should say there isn't really a hard and fast divide between these two. They're just a useful way of categorizing them. There is a ton of overlap. If you go really deep into concentration practice, it's hard not to eventually notice that your sense of self is actually something like an empty illusion. 
And likewise, it's hard to go really deep into emptiness practices without attaining deep states of concentration. Um, sorry, you asked a question about insight practice? Yeah, so how can people get started with their own insight practice? Because we've, when we've talked about meditation before, um, I think most people we've talked to kind of recommend, you know, you focus on the breath, like we're saying, you know, you focus on it's that t concentration because that's very accessible, you know, and very, very sort of easy to do. You can just close your eyes, you can focus on your breath and, and you're there. Um, how do people start an insight meditation practice? Right. Uh, well, at the sort of simplest explanation, it's taking that object of concentration and then noticing any aspects about it that are impermanent. So as you're sat in the chair right now, if you feel your hands, they probably feel like solid hands. But if you focus your attention just down to your fingertips, you'll probably notice there's actually a lot of little vibratory sensations that seem to be dancing all across your fingertips. And then if you really focus in your attention, you might notice that actually um, that's all there is, is sensations arising and vanishing that your mind is grouping together to form the sense of a solid object that you conceptualize as a fingertip. Um, so it's doing that with anything. You can do it with visual objects, but I find, um, and a lot of people find bodily sensations to be <clears throat> um, really great objects for insight practice, what they call like body scanning in uh, like Goenka retreats. That's probably the most popular Vipassana retreat people uh, encounter. Um, or the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition uh, that I've done more work with that Daniel Ingram's work comes out of. Um, they focus a lot on the breath and diaphragm moving. Um, and, you know, the sense of your own diaphragm shifting, it begins as a solid object. And then you just kind of get absorbed into awareness of the breath until all you can feel is this shifting of sensations up and down through the diaphragm and the sense of a body disappears and the sense of an observer disappears and you can just collapse into that sort of, it's like a, the world just becomes like a murmuration of sensations. You know, these, you know, again, I don't like the word illusory because I feel like it almost devalues them, but it, it just gives you this awareness that what we call solid objects, they're just patterns of sensations that form and vanish and form and vanish and form and vanish. So yeah, ramping up your concentration with the concentration practice is a great way to start. And then once you've got some good concentration skills, just start to notice, you know, you can almost just ask yourself the question. If you're sat there with your eyes closed, like what is it that convinces me that I'm just sat in a room on a cushion you know, what are the sensations that I can point to that really show that that is happening? And the more you look, the more you realize there's not really any object. And you can regain that awareness of what I was talking about before, that emptiness, the void, the sense of this being the Big Bang, and everything constantly dissolving and reforming in this sort of cyclical in-breath and out-breath sort of pattern. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> of course not. <laughs> <laughs>
This is bass. It's not meant to make sense. So we usually ask our guests to recommend some reading material or movies or music or podcasts or documentaries or television series or anything that will relate to what you've been talking about tonight or something that you think that listeners of Vase might just be interested in. Is there anything like that that you could recommend? Uh, yeah. Um, well, some of the books I already mentioned, uh, Daniel Ingram's book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha is great. Maybe not as your first meditation book. Um, Jack Kornfield's A Path with a Heart is a, probably a better introduction. Um, Rudolf Steiner's How to Know How Higher Worlds, if you're interested in sort of the Western initiatory, uh, more occult path. Um, Valentin Tomberg, if you've ever come across Meditations on the Tarot, um, I've got my he, microphone propped up on a copy of that book right now. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, an anthroposophist, which was uh, Steiner's um, tradition that he founded, and then he left it for Catholicism. Um, but he was a very esoteric form of Catholic. Um, yeah, that book is like an absolute masterpiece. Um, I've also recently been getting into Sri Aurobindo. Um, I've got a, like a thousand page brick of a book called the life divine, which was sort of his masterpiece work as well. Um, that I'm working through. Um, he's just such a clear communicator from the more Eastern Hindu side of things and, uh, shares a lot of similarities with Steiner. I kind of see them as parallel teachers. Um, uh, I don't read a ton of fiction nowadays, but I think I recommended The Tindalos Asset by Caitlin R. Kiernan to you. You did, yeah. And I feel like that just, she has a wonderfully dark imagination, which really captures some of the um, edgier side of psychedelic experience, <laughs> which uh, I've spent a lot of time there. Hopefully, uh, everybody else won't have to spend quite as long in those waters. Um, films, have you ever seen The Fountain? Yes. Yeah. Many times. Love that movie. And uh, I really felt like that kind of captured the um, the kind of themes that I'm fascinated by, the way he goes back in time and has those uh, parallel synchronous encounters with his previous selves and that kind of thing. Great Incredible soundtrack too. by Clint Massell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll have to watch it again and pay attention to that. Um, podcasts. You know, I've been listening to this one recently. It's a lot of fun. Um, have you ever heard of the beer biceps podcast? No, <laughs> it's uh, it's an Indian podcast. It's pretty big though. He's got like maybe a few million followers. Um, but he interviews a lot of, um, well, actually I haven't heard that many guests. There's one guy on there called Rajarshi Nandi, who's a Hindu Tantra practitioner and, uh, it goes very deep on a lot of stuff. Um, and yeah, if you're into occult topics, he is a great source and, uh, a very different perspective from what you're probably used to getting from Westerners. 
Um, so yeah, Rajarshi Nandi on the Beer Biceps podcast. He's been my current uh, flavor of the month. Yeah. Fantastic. And where can people find you, Lauren, um, online um, if they uh, uh, want to follow you on? Um, do you have Instagram? Do you have Twitter? Um, what if people want a tattoo? Yeah, uh, just go to my website, laurenfetterman.com. Um, and I'm on Instagram as Lauren Fetterman Tattoos. I am not a huge social media person, um, but uh, so I don't post that much. But uh, yeah, if anybody's in the area and wants a tattoo, get in touch. I also do oil paintings if you want a badass piece of artwork for your wall, get in touch. Or uh, if you just are into these ideas, get in touch. Oh, and if you're uh, some kind of expert app developer who wants to help me create the timeline app that is going to revolutionize people's experience of time and space, then get in touch. Incredible. <laughs> and if you yeah. want to find more Vase, you can find us at Twitter and Instagram, and that's at Vase, then Vase spelled backwards. So that's at V A Y S E E S Y A V. You can find our website at www.vase.co.uk. You can get episodes of Vase on all major podcasting platforms, or at least most of them, uh, but only at www.vase.co.uk can you get the full show notes which uh, Keith puts a lot of work into and we're all very proud of um, you can email us at vaseinfo at with any weird experiences that you have any ideas um, or anything you'd like to recommend to us you can get the soundtrack from uh, Bandcamp that's done by our very own Stephen James Buckley here under the name Polly Pause and any money that he makes from that he puts back into the podcast very generously and if you have any spare cash that you'd like to check at us uh, we have a Ko-Fi um, and if you give us a regular donation you can join our discord server which is a lot of fun on there and uh, there's lots of like-minded people talking about lots of interesting weird stuff on there so thanks very much lauren it's been absolutely incredible to talk to you um I'm, and we'd love to do it again sometime if you'd like to come back that would be awesome uh this has been a lot of fun and uh yes great questions you actually started at the end of where i thought we might get to <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> yeah. it's like i uh thought you know you guessing. <laughs> yeah it's like let's get to the real philosophical meat of the issue first yeah. <laughs> and just go from there <laughs> this is where the the lack of professionalism comes through i think <laughs> no no it's great it's great i was wondering lauren uh so with your um your system you're kind of uh yeah the kind of mirror point system and the mapping out and everything mm -hmm. out of every sort of well-known person well-known character alive or dead who would you like to do that on who would be the person that you'd most like to come <laughs> to you and say listen i want you to do my map and they can be alive or dead and don't be boring and say someone that no one's heard of don't oh, you know don't right. say like oh my my you know my wife or something because it's you know we want that's not the sort of question it is it's a yeah. silly question i've already done hers i'm always mapping hers and our relationship um gosh who would i want to map the life of um well i have to come up with somebody i'm real curious about rudolf steiner i wrote my dissertation yeah. on him he to me is um controversial character but as far as just someone who's gone to the depths and seems to have had, you know, forgotten more spiritual initiations in his personal path than I will ever have in my own life. You know, it's like, 
I've kind of done that with him to some degree. I can see where different themes in his work come up and they seem to follow this planetary pattern. Um, Like, you know, he founds the Anthroposophical Society and then his next thing is like trying to stop World War I happen, which feels very clearly like the shift from Sun to Mars that I talked about with my friend. Um, And it's all about stopping the war. And, um, And like... That shift, it's it's this moment of deep sadness as well. And he built the first Gertianum, which was the center for the Anthroposophical Society. And he was like carving it out of wood with his own hands. You know, he was like really put all of himself into it. And then it got burned down by some arsonists. Uh, don't know who. And then he built a new one out of concrete this massive angular concrete structure. The other one looked like something you might find in Rivendell. And then he built this like concrete fortress, like try and burn this down. And uh, that to me was just such a clear example of that. And then shifting into Jupiter after that, towards the end of his life, he gets very into um, uh, sort of revolutionizing the arts and he creates Eurythmy, which is this form of dance and anthroposophical forms of painting and um which to me is very jupiterian and it's sort of like oh you get out of this warlike phase of mars and you can just focus on this more creative artistic peaceful um uh you know disciplines so yeah i would like to do that in more depth i think with steiner probably is there a is there a fictional character you'd like to do it to ooh assuming it was possible let's assume that there is assuming that you were given the information you need this this probably isn't my uh my final answer but um you know there's certain books that map the spiritual path with some seeming accuracy um where you see them going through these particular stages quite clearly um uh, like you know maybe herman hess's siddhartha like a subtext um, almost yeah running through it, these themes and i mean some people do it like very um uh, explicitly, like uh, if you read uh, Foucault's Pendulum, and each right. of the chapters is named after one of the spheres on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, and um, pretty on the so, nose. yeah, he's kind of done it for me there. But yeah. I do that uh, with a lot of things. Like um, I'm kind of dodging your character question. I'm afraid. But <laughs> 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 um, I'll, I'll go for Siddhartha, but it would probably be something else. I don't actually read that much fiction, I have to admit. Right. Um, but uh, one of the things I was going to say was that uh, one of the things I'd love to like include in a book about this stuff is different films that follow these planetary themes. And because each of the planets has its own particular aesthetic, and like one of the things I've noticed is um, like Uranus, it's like the masculine, it is kind of grayish, bluish, technological, AI, um, those kinds of themes. And when I see a film like Dark City, like that is Uranus through and through. And one of the weird things that I notice is like Uranus, the whole thing is characterized by this longing to get to Neptune. Neptune represents like the light at the end of the tunnel that you're doing your manly martyred striving for, you know? Yeah. And when I see films that have this very obvious Uranus aesthetic, again and again, I see it come up where uh, I can name three off the top of my head. In Dark City, 
There's actually just a random scene in there where he's trying to get into a nightclub called like Neptune Rising or something. And yeah. Then, or Ad Astra. Did you ever see that? It wasn't great. That it was sci-fi with um, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, yeah. yeah. He is trying to go and reach his father who is somewhere between Uranus and Neptune. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and the whole film's color palette is again this very muted like almost black and gray and yeah that trying to reach your father trying to reach the light at the end of the tunnel and then um oh there's another one did you ever see the lighthouse no i'm not seeing that egg is the egg is movie yeah yeah so I, the I'm lighthouse like <laughs> I, I love that movie that movie is actually shot in black and white yeah it's yeah. two dudes in a lighthouse phallic symbol if you want to go there and only Willem Dafoe's character is allowed to go and uh, manage the light at the top. And he's like, he's like drunk looking at it. It's this intoxicating experience for him to look at the light at the top of the lighthouse. And he won't let Robert Pattinson's character go up and do it. And eventually when all hell breaks loose and Robert Pattinson, um, they basically start fighting Willem Dafoe's character turns into Neptune. It's like just again and again, when I see a film where I'm like, this is totally a Uranus movie, this battle with the father, the Neptune being the thing that you can't reach. Anyway, sorry, I'm going off on one, but I would love to map other films in that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole other book, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Well, it would be a nice way of illustrating it for people who, um, you know, just to make it more accessible for people. Hopefully they can relate to it. 